Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition we'll feature part four of the life of Darwin, bionic eyes around the world, and tortured crabs. But first up, here's the news. has been going on with the heatwave in Australia. Apparently, summer in Australia is normally ameliorated, that is, the heat is made a little less by the existence of wet soil. And the wet soil comes from the rain, and the rain comes from the northern Australian monsoon. And the northern Australian monsoon comes from Asia. And this year, the northern Australian monsoon is very late. And because it's late, there hasn't been much rain. And because there hasn't been much rain across Australia, the soils are not wet, they're dry. And because the soils are dry, the summer sun doesn't evaporate them and cool the air. So because the air's not cooled, the air gets really, really hot. And when the hot air blows, there's no cool sea breezes to counter it along the coast. And so you get record temperatures across Australia. 46 degrees in Sydney. The Australian Science Communication Media Centre has collected these quotes from these climate and meteorological scientists. Dr. Marcus Donut is postdoctoral research fellow at the Climate Change Research Centre, the University of New South Wales. He says, in recent studies, we've analysed how extreme temperatures have changed globally. For most regions, including Australia, we found that extremely high temperatures have become more frequent and more intense, while extremely low temperatures are occurring less frequently than they did in the middle of the 20th century. Counting the number of very warm days, in this specific case defined as the warmest 5% during the 1951 to 1980 period, we found that during the most recent three decades, the last 30 years, the frequency of days in this warmest category increased 40% globally. John Nunn is South Australia's Acting Regional Director for the Bureau of Meteorology. Heat waves, he says, are a normal part of Australian summers. Just like any other natural phenomena, they exhibit variable intensity, although the timescales in which they vary can be very long. This multi-year variability makes it difficult for people to appreciate their exposure risk under this variability leaving them vulnerable to severe and extreme events. In other words, people can't tell because summers are so different from year to year. Heat waves become severe as the overnight minimum temperature rises. And of course, we've recently had night temperatures up to 33 degrees. A loss of lower recovery temperatures during heat waves leads to an accumulation of heat in human and infrastructure systems. That is, in the inside of houses, get hot and stay hot, leading to failure amongst vulnerable communities of people or overstretched utilities. 
An additional factor is the degree of acclimatization or adjustment to rising thermal load which can compound the impact. That is, you get used to how hot it is and you don't realise that it's doing you damage. Over this summer, warmer than normal seasonal conditions leading to the current heat wave have reduced this factor, lowering the risk of an extreme event. The current heat wave is unusual due to its aerial extent. More than 70% of the continent is currently experiencing heatwave conditions. Apart from the required slow-moving synoptic weather pattern required for any heatwave, the spatial extent of this event can be attributed to the extent of dry soils across the Australian landscape. Low antecedent rainfalls across much of the continent, along with the late arrival of the Australian monsoon, have resulted in drier soils. Without the ability to remove latent heat through evaporation from moist soils, surface temperatures rise above normal with the daily heating cycle building a deeper body of stagnating hot air over the interior. Breaking the heatwave cycle will require a combination of the onset of the rain-bearing monsoon trough and the penetration of the cooler southern ocean air masses. Severe heatwave conditions across the interior of Australia are set to continue for a while yet. People are seeing the world with bionic eyes. Last May, an Australian woman blinded for 30 years by inherited retinitis pigmentosa was implanted with a prototype bionic eye. Retinitis pigmentosa causes gradual and progressive loss of the light-detecting cells in the retina. People with the condition often start noticing problems with their peripheral vision and problems seeing in low-light conditions during adolescence. By middle age, many people with retinitis pigmentosa will have greater problems with their vision and some will become blind. There's currently no cure for the condition, so any developments and treatments are a step forward. The Australian device was planted behind her retina with a 24 pixel display that allows her to make out light and shapes. The camera and vision processor were hooked up just weeks ago on a hearing aid-like device worn on her ear so she can now try it outside the lab. Information from this prototype will allow higher resolution devices with 98 pixels to be implanted this year and with 1024 pixels in 2014. Amazingly, the project is designed so that the patients can receive upgrades every year. The project involves more than 150 investigators, the University of Melbourne, New South Wales and Western Sydney with the Bionics Institute, Centre for Eye Research Australia, the National Vision Research Institute and technology research group NICTA. Meanwhile in Britain, the BBC report that two men also blinded by retinitis pigmentosa have been implanted with artificial retinas developed by Oxford University and can see light and basic shapes. Ten further people will be implanted with a British bionic eye this year as part of a clinical trial. These artificial retinas have 1500 pixels and are placed beneath the retina as with the Australian bionic eye. In America, the Argus 2 is implanted in front of the retina and has 60 pixels. Users say they can see rough shapes and track the movement of objects and slowly read large writing. The company's new device in development is the BioRetina which will have a 24 by 24 or 576 pixel display sitting on top of the retina. Unlike the previous devices which shared data with a vision processor sitting on your ear, the BioRetina has its vision processor and camera built into the artificial retinal display, 
the whole thing is implanted, even the camera. It's powered by an infrared laser that shoots into the eye from glasses with corrective lenses. Inside the eye, the infrared light is picked up and converted to electricity by a photovoltaic cell to power the implant, just like a solar cell. Clinical trials should start this year in Europe because it's harder to get permission from the authorities in the USA. Painful crab shock. Around the world, lobsters, crabs and prawns are left out of laws protecting animals from cruelty, on the presumption that they don't experience pain because their nervous systems are just instinctive. As a consequence, lobsters are regularly boiled alive, and you can see crabs carved up alive in restaurants and on cooking shows like Iron Chef. It's still moving! The difference between humane treatment and callous disregard comes from the idea that crustaceans only have nociception, which involves an instant movement away from painful stimuli, but doesn't involve any understanding or awareness of the pain. Therefore, an animal that only has nociception can't suffer. On the other hand, is pain, where you are aware of the painful sensation and can learn to avoid it in the future. In other words, an animal that feels pain remembers the pain and learns from it and can suffer from it. An animal that only has nociception flinches away, but either never feels a sensation or instantly forgets it and never learns or suffers. Professor Robert Elwood of Queen's University in Belfast was asked by a chef if crustaceans feel pain and set out to find the definitive answer. Pain leads animals to make trade-offs between keeping a valuable resource and avoiding painful stimulation. He decided to investigate using the common shore crab, which values dark hideaways under rocks where they can avoid hungry predators. Professor Elwood and his grad student tested whether the crabs would give up a good hiding place to avoid an electric shock that might be painful, but wasn't harmful to the crabs. They captured 90 wild crabs from a nearby beach and put them in tanks which had two dark shelters. Once in the tank, the 90 crabs were allowed to choose their preferred hiding place. Then, some of the crabs were given an electric shock in their favourite shelter. They were removed from the tanks for a rest and put back in the tanks a second time. On the second visit to the tank, most crabs went straight for the same hideaway they chose the first time and received a second shock. They took the crabs out again for yet another rest. The third time back in the tank, most of the shock crabs explored until they found alternative shelter, and the rest stayed in the lighted area rather than be shocked again. The third time, most of the shock crabs explored until they found alternative shelter in the tank, and the rest stayed in the lighted area, where they might fear predators, rather than be shocked again. Professor Elwood and grad student Barry McGee conclude that the shock clearly changed the crab's behaviour in seeking shelter and making choices about where to shelter. This is consistent with the definition of pain used for every other species. The research was funded by the Northern Ireland Department of Education and Learning. It'll be interesting to see if this study will be used to change the law that protects animals from cruelty to include crustaceans, now that it's been proved that they learn to avoid pain and can therefore suffer. The paper, Shock Avoidance by Discrimination Learning in the Shore Crab is Consistent with a Key Criterion for Pain, was published in the February 2013 issue of the Journal of Experimental Biology.
listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. From ABC's Hungry Beast, here's a song by comedian Dan Illick, Tim Leslie, Jason Evans, Tristan Sess and Katrine Meisner from the University of New South Wales Climate Change Centre, Roger Jones from the Centre for Strategic Economic Studies, Ailey Gallant from the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne, Leanne Armand and Linda Beaumont from Climate Futures at Macquarie University, and Anoud Tatan from the Laboratoire de Meteorologique Dynamique Commerce École Polytechnique. The song is called I'm a Climate Scientist. I'm not a, I'm not a climate scientist. I'm not a climate scientist. I'm not a climate scientist either. Yo, we're climate scientists and there's no denying this. Climate change is real. Who's a climate scientist? I'm a climate scientist. Not a Cleo finalist, no a climate scientist. Dropping facts all over this glass. While business be crying about a carbon change is caused by people earth on like alien has no sequel we gotta move fast or we'll be forsaken because we were too busy sucking things in copenhagen hey it's hot in here 32 percent more carbon in the atmosphere oh 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 ice 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 raising sea levels twice by twice we're scientists what we speak is true unlike andrew bolt our work is I'm a climate scientist, an Anglican revivalist, no, a climate scientist! Back, like climate change on crack, permafrost subtracts, methane release is whack, write a letter then burn it, denialists deny this in your dreams, cause climate change means greater extremes, heat won't be the norm, heat waste bigger than a storm! Effect is just a theory, sucker. Yes, yeah, so is gravity. Float away by the floater. <laughs> Who's a climate scientist? I'm a climate scientist. A penny farthing cyclist? No, a climate scientist. A Fox News journalist? No. A paleontologist? No. A clean coal lobbyist? No. And now enjoy episode 4 of Natural Selection, a radio play by Lachlan Watmore of the life, journey, and discoveries of the greatest biologist of the modern era, Charles Darwin. This recording comes from a 2003 radio stream at 20 kilobits per second, so please excuse the lower quality sound. In this episode, Darwin returns to England. the Beagle in Falmouth and hurried home to Shrewsbury to be reunited with my family. I walked into my father's house unannounced and a joyous reunion ensued. My father turned to my sisters and said, Why, the shape of his head is quite altered. 
Thanks to the copious letters and specimens I had sent home from various parts of the world, I was now regarded as a distinguished man of science. In 1837, I leased some rooms in London and began classifying the mountain of specimens that had accumulated from the voyage. I was encouraged by my old professor John Henslow and the great geologist Charles Lyle and through their influence received a grant of a thousand pounds to write a five-volume work on the creatures I had brought home. I was also made secretary of the Geological Society of London. In 1839, I married my cousin, Emma Wedgwood, youngest daughter of my beloved uncle, Joss. My health seemed to have been affected by the voyage, and I was never to be completely whole again. However, I was always busy, studying everything from earthworms to vegetables, and spent many years classifying a tiny barnacle, no bigger than the head of a pin. I also read an essay by the Reverend Thomas Malthus, written in 1798. It discussed the idea that the human population was increasing so rapidly that it would one day be impossible to feed everyone. I suddenly realized that not only the human, but all animal populations were kept in check by limitations in the food supply, and that this worked to prevent the world from being overrun by living things. Many creatures produce far many more offspring than survive to maturity, and even if you took the slowest breeding animal on the planet, the African elephant, and calculated the number of offspring produced by just one breeding pair, within 750 years you would have 19 million elephants. However, the population of elephants stays about the same, so obviously that one breeding pair produced only two of them. It was at about this time that I became interested in pigeon breeding, and this was to help my new theory about the origin of species enormously. Thinking back on it, I might echo my friend Thomas Huxley when he said, How extremely stupid not to have thought of that! Pigeon breeding, like dog breeding or the breeding of agricultural stock, involves the selection of suitable individuals to grow to maturity and pass desirable physical traits onto their offspring. If I wanted, for argument's sake, to breed a dog with a woolly coat, I would pick from a litter of pups those with the most woolly coats. It may only be a slight kink in their coat, not really woolly at all, but it would be a start. I would breed those pups together so that the wooliness is passed on to their pups. Then from that litter, I would pick the pups with the most woolly coats of that generation, breed them together and repeat the procedure again and again until, after successive generations of concentrating the wooliness, I had a poodle. Do you see? It's so simple. At last I had the mechanism for descent with modification, which in the fullness of time would come to be called evolution. of creatures there is variation such as some animals having woolly coats and some not if there was some sort of selective pressure say colder and colder winters as an ice age began to encroach the animals with woolly coats will survive to maturity 
The more bald ones will die in the cold. The survivors will then pass their woolly characteristics on to their offspring. And within a certain number of generations, all the creatures in the population will have woolly coats. Evolution was not a new idea. My own grandfather, Dr. Erasmus Darwin, had been an advocate of descent with modification, and the great French naturalist, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, had proposed a mechanism for it in the 18th century. theory suggested that instead of certain individuals being selected for and surviving to pass on the woolly coatedness, the entire population simply grew woolly coats as the glacial ice age approached, then passed those acquired characteristics onto their offspring. Remember L'Enfant de l'Elephant? The Elephant's Child by Rudyard Kipling. We? Oui? Yes! The Elephant's Child had his nose stretched by a crocodile and ended up with a trunk. And his relatives got so jealous, they all rushed off to the Limpopo River to have their noses stretched into trunks. And that's why elephants have trunks. Bien sûr, this acquisition of characteristics was the basis for my model of evolution. I was wrong. Forgive me? Nothing to forgive, monsieur. It was a very good attempt at explanation. You just didn't get the mechanism right. Mm. Say the gear. Ah, bon bon. Mmm, chocolat. I didn't publish anything to do with my theory until 20 years after my return from the Beagle's voyage. It was unwise, or so I considered, to publish something that appeared to contradict the book of Genesis. At best I faced social ostracism, and if I had set foot on the continent I could have been arrested. <laughs> June 1858, a letter arrived from the Malay Peninsula, written by a young naturalist called Alfred Russell Wallace. I'm lesser known, but I independently also uh, discovered the theory of evolution. After many years of traveling and collecting in South America and Southeast Asia, I suddenly had the idea while lying ill with fever. I wrote it down in an essay entitled On the Tendencies of Varieties to Depart Indefinitely from the Original Type, which I enclosed in my letter to Darwin. I had already started work on a popular book to tell of my new theory, and here it appeared that I might be beaten to the winner's post by Wallace. However, my friends Charles Lyle and Joseph Hooker, who I had privately informed of my theory, persuaded me to work together with Wallace, and we presented a joint paper to the Linnaean Society the following month. A year later, in 1859, John Murray published my book entitled On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favoured Races in the Struggle for Light. Only 1,250 copies were printed but they sold out in the first day of publication. At first it didn't create the heated controversy that I thought it would. However, by the third reprint, after several scientists had cautiously sniffed at it and its central theme that the story of Genesis was a myth had become more and more widespread, the ire of the clergy was aroused. This blasphemer Darwin dares to question the word of Holy Scripture. I'll smash him! 
And so, in late June 1860, a meeting was convened to debate the issue held by the British Academy for the Advancement of Science. The final confrontation between reason and faith was about to take place. Listen next week for episode 5 of Natural Selection, The Life, Journey and Discoveries of Charles Darwin by Lachlan Watmore. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send your congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, helpful suggestions, or your contributions to Diffusion at 2SER.com. That's Diffusion at 2SER.com. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Look for Diffusion Science Radio on Facebook and contribute to the conversation. Contributing to the program were Dominic Cochrane, Tim Baines, Adam Mark and Lachlan Watmore. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>